Hey guys, George Messa, Third Eye Edify podcast here with an episode for you that, as I've said a few times in the past, is a long time coming. I had a certain path with my music studies that's completely taken me out of everything I ever learned about it, which is pretty much what happens every time I look at something, of course. But um, this particular path, we'll call it, will probably lead to several episodes. I'm not sure if they're all going to come in a row, but, you know, we'll see. And um, I guess it all started when I was on Chance's Interverse, and I asked the question, what is first, melody or percussion? What makes the first kind of music that we know? So often I'm seen, I've, I've been presented with, here's the oldest melody, here's the oldest music, and I'm absolutely not convinced whatsoever which thankfully a lot of other people are starting to find with all kinds of different things regarding our history. And it's hard to say. But the basis of this particular episode will focus on one very simple concept. That no other instrument is more real and more impactful and probably not nearly as versatile as the human voice. Our voice is ultimately the instrument it's the one and only and much like any other invention you can possibly think of anything from cameras to levees to (laughs) you name it honestly the human body already does it the thing created without hammer and nails and i always wonder what are they going to try to reproduce next what are they going to try to make a computer do you know, better than us next when it's never better. And um, the, the, the wealth of instruments that we have throughout the world, no matter what, that same melody, that same, you know, music played or sung by a human being will always be more impactful. It might even catch your attention more. Can it hurt as much? Can it do the same things? We'll look into that in a little bit. But I think it might be best for us to take a quick look at how we actually perceive sound. Why is it that the human voice gives us the most direct reaction? Why is it that most cathedrals are built so that one person sings and it's amplified to sound like a very, very, very large person or a bunch of people singing at once? It's worth discussing. It's worth analyzing because... The human ear is pretty amazing. And it does so many things that still are not answered. And you guessed it. There are theories left and right, and that's all they've got. I'm not saying I'm going to be doing better. Um, Theories are, of course, needed. Hypotheses are needed to get somewhere to find an answer. But we still have theories. And it's, it's amazing that we still don't know What's at the bottom of the ocean? We still don't understand what's going on in our ears. We have an idea, but we don't have answers for pitch recognition, for familiarity. Um, Everything you listen to goes essentially straight into your central nervous system, which is developed at approximately three weeks, maybe a tiny bit longer depending on who you ask, but... One of the most integral things you have in your body takes sound and does something with it. 
This is probably why if you're watching a, a movie with a very young child who's relatively unaware of what's actually going on, if the music is hinting at something bad or nefarious, it, the kid might go, oh, you know, not knowing what's going on. But the music cues them. Some type of sound, whether it's an orchestra or just the sound of thunder or a car crashing, it hits their central nervous system, the brain and spine. Immediate reaction. It's probably a defense mechanism on top of a lot of other things. But um, before I get into more about what is the information processing that our brain does, right? How different noises contribute to cellular and behavioral behavioral variability. Um, I think it's worth just showing a few pictures, maybe just getting the gist, the overall sense of what the ear looks like and what it does. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the ear drum, hammer, stirrups. They react. But that's just the start of what happens when you hear something. So let's take a look at some pictures here. I think you'll be interested. I'm sure some of you know something about this. But when we talk about things like masking and the basilar membrane, maybe we'll uh, get to some interesting things that you didn't know about. And I hope so. Here's an overall look. Outer, middle, and inner ear. You can see the eardrum is clearly labeled. The malleus and stapes that come right after it. And they connect to a bunch of other things. This is a very general overview of what's going on. And... Um, you got to be careful. You can rupture the eardrum. That bad things can happen very easily, and um, it's it's important if you're a musician like myself for things like either hearing protection or at least awareness of your surroundings and knowing when to cover your ears or get out of a situation where you're it's too much for your ears. Your body usually tells you what's going on, doesn't it? So here's the basilar membrane, the apex and the base at the, at each end of it. The membrane itself actually tells us what we're hearing, and there's theories in place to tell us how, and I'll discuss those in a moment. But as you can see here, it's connected to a lot of different things. And this, what's under this tectorial membrane is something that's really incredible, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But there's hairs involved, and those hairs as you see auditory nerve here, these hairs are connected to neurons. Lots and lots of neurons, of course. And that leads us to discuss what we're looking at here. The organ of corti. C-O-R-T-I. Italian for court. Because it comes from Italian C-O-R-T-E. A manorial court, perhaps. <laughs> right? Lowest court in England during the feudal period. Um, maybe, maybe not. But it's the seat of hearing. And the basilar membrane literally plays this for hundreds of thousands of tiny hair cells. They're tuned for sympathetic vibrations. Sympathetic vibrations leading to something I'd like to discuss about the, the sitar a very popular instrument in India, which potentially came from Syria. Look at this here. It's a microscopic image of the organ of Corti. I'm not sure how many times zoomed, but I'm assuming a lot. This is a very clear look at something that is extremely tiny. And all of this is helping you hear. 
And what do we hear? Nothing crazy, but we definitely have a range that we hear in, as you can see here. We usually go somewhere from the from this apex to this base. You can see 200 up to 20,000. Now, I am aware of 20 hertz working for us, but most instruments don't play that. It's not the kind of frequency you're used to catching, trust me. But look at what happens in this tube. At the base, we have the highest frequencies, and then once it makes its way all the way in to the cochlear duct, we get the lower frequencies. Now, the debate rages on. How in the world do we get this? How do we get to hear and discern between notes, we'll call them pitches, or just any sound? How do you know what kind of bird you're hearing? How do you know whose voice you're hearing? How do you know what part of the orchestral landscape you're hearing? The texture, as it's called. There's a lot of theories in place, as I said. And again, I just want to give this overview so we can discuss a few more things about the nature of how we hear and why I think the human voice really is the only voice, the only, excuse me, instrument when it comes to hearing anything. And uh, there's two particular theories, place theory and what's called either uh, periodicity theory or temporal timing theory. There's something overall called the place volley theory, which combines both of these, right? Place theory takes the frequency and says that regarding its place in the tube, as I just showed, is where it generally tells you what frequency you're hearing, depends on how far it makes it in. I can see that if that's if it functions exactly like they say it does, then I can see that. But then there's a the matter of time. What is the periodicity of the frequency that you're hearing? What is the time? And that activates a bunch of these hairs. It activates a bunch of these neurons. And those specific activated neurons give you an idea of what frequency it is. It's so complicated that I understand why we don't know yet. It must be impossible to do the right kind of experiments to test this stuff at the it's at, at, at a relatively microscopic level it's crazy but just knowing all this imagine what kind of damage you can do being near a sonic boom or an explosion or some kind of element of war or louder sports when you get hit really hard let's say football whatever rugby wrestling ufc <laughs> recently merged got a whole thing on that coming i assume because that's something um, so the volley, the place volley theory combines both. It says that low pitches work for the time theory, the temporal theory, and higher pitches work with the place theory. Higher pitches work with placement, and lower pitches work with timing. Maybe because, and if you hear certain frequencies, loud or soft, you'll get the idea. A loud, high-pitched frequency goes at an extremely rapid rate, almost to the point where if you were to physically write a diagram of it, which is not really reality, it would just look like a block mass, where a low frequency is not as frequent. And you can actually hear... You can actually hear the timing of it. It may be deceiving you what you're actually hearing, but it's possible. So I can see lower frequencies being time and higher frequencies being based on location in the cochlear tube. 
but you look at that organ of Corti and you think, is there more to it? Probably. There's this amazing thing we do called masking, forward and backward masking. And let's say you're at a restaurant and you're talking to everyone at your table. You hear the people you're talking to and there's at least 30, 40 other voices chattering away, the sound of plates and knives and, and forks hitting. You don't hear all that stuff for the most part when you're really focused talking to somebody or really focused listening. This is masking. Your ear can mask out the things it doesn't need when it needs to focus on other things. And they don't know how. They can assume why, but again, it's all theories. It's really something. I referenced a few books uh, in this that I think was worth mentioning. There's one particular one called Music Cognition, W.J. Dowling and uh, Dane L. Harwood. And there's this other one I have right here, The Science of Sound. It's a great book. And I've been looking, I've been referencing, and I'm going to look a lot further into to make some more episodes, I assume, from Helmholtz, who, from the 19th century, and in 1895, I believe was the year, On the Sensations of Tone. It's quite a tome of information, believe me. And this man was working to the point where uh, something that I don't think I'm going to get to discuss in this episode, the harmonics, the overtone series of one frequency, of one pitch, has a world of sounds inside of it, which I demonstrated very well on episode number four, 440, hurts, like, ow, it hurts. And um, I highly suggest checking that out if you haven't, because it'll, it'll help you relate to this one. And I had an entire nearly, or possibly three or more hour uh, discussion on Chance Garten's Innerverse podcast, which I suggest checking out if you haven't. I did a very long episode on there about music and its nature and what I think it's being used to be manipulated with nowadays in a negative way, of course, and not going to be the focus of the conversation. But this guy said he could hear 17 harmonics inside of one pitch. I understand this. I can kind of get there too. If I focus in and really meditate on a pitch, depending on the instrument, depending on what frequency device is giving it, you can start hearing all these other notes or sounds that are inside of that one frequency. So there really isn't anything like that, a pure single frequency. It's what you see on these graphs and other you know, electronic devices trying to analyze sound. It's not that. It's, it's, it's a sinusoidal. It's, taking, it's a computer version of something. Sinusoidal as in one sound. One sound has many, many, many sounds in it. And it seems to connect to the mysteries of our world. It really does. And that's something I'm, I'm starting to look into very heavily. More to come on that soon. Um, what we normally get are harmonically complex tones. It's not a chord, but it's just because harmony is a chord. More than one note heard at once, uh, musically speaking. Harmonically complex tone is what we typically get in the world. When you speak, when you hear something. Picture a baby screaming. Do you really think that's one exact frequency that you're hearing? It's definitely not. And I'm not talking about the changes in the pitch. I'm just talking about the nature of screaming. Scream! Do you really think it's one single tiny little pitch in there? Not even close. And any instrument that's ever been handmade or made, you know, any man-made instrument, it's the same thing. It's not like that. And um, that's something to really think about here because these complex waves are what make our world, and when they study a lot of these things, they go to the sinusoidal, the computer-generated single, pure tone. Um, 
fundamental only. When you hear a note A or C, you hear that note, and then there's a huge complex harmonic series of partials, the overtone series, look into it. That's what you're getting the real sound of it from. And the timbre or the nature of how it sounds, knowing what instrument made the note, knowing who's talking, the timbre is why there's different partials. There's different parts of that one note's overtone series that are accentuated. And that's how you hear the difference in notes. Every pitch does have the same harmonic series. For the most part, I think that's been proven. But what partials you hear the most that's where you get to really find things. And that's why I'm so curious about this organ of Corti. If certain frequencies are pushing different parts of the harmonics, different parts of the partials into the ear, then we are tuned to hear things. They always talk about how like dog frequencies, how you don't hear them. I have a feeling there's a way to either feel or hear them. And maybe we're not all really trained for it yet. And... um Think think about this, right? Because I have a lot of notes going in a lot of different directions here, and I want to make sure that there's a reasonable way to approach all of this stuff. Because I mentioned sympathetic vibrations before. And there is an instrument that works off of this. Take a look at this for a second. This instrument is the sitar. And normally, on average, there's 19 strings. Very interestingly, 13 of them are not played sympathetic strings they vibrate based on the other seven strings that you actually play 13 months of the year seven days a week is it a coincidence i doubt it's a coincidence there's a possible relationship there um basing things on sympathetic vibrations is a very unique aspect of things because when you play something it sends the sound into the air our medium and if it catches, if anything that is prepared to receive a sympathetic vibration catches it, if it aligns, it'll vibrate, it'll ring. When you listen to a sitar, you hear all this shimmering, beautiful stuff happening all around it. That is the sympathetic strings vibrating in relation to the actually played strings. This has to be based on something going on in our ear or in our soul. I don't know. It's an incredible insight into what goes on into how the nature of how you actually hear things. It's really incredible. And I, if you don't know, you've all probably heard the sound of this instrument. If you haven't, go look at it immediately. But um, thinking about what it actually means is a whole other story. And um, what I'm really curious about too, and I think it's worth discussing here because I'm kind of setting an outline for several episodes just by having this talk with you right now. <laughs> but Think about this. An inexperienced person, an inexperienced musician, right, can easily grasp some relatively complex details about music just by paying attention. This goes for any language. Um, most people hear, most people speak their own languages and don't necessarily have to think about or even are able to explain in detail something, even though you're a master of the language. And uh, this this goes for musicians too we are all musicians i've said this before we are all musicians but um when it comes to this textbook knowledge this language even the scientists working their hardest can't explain how we 
take in these sounds and hear them. But there is something that we all can agree on, I think, is that the soothing sounds of what your mother or father, potentially your mother more, are able to produce for you instinctually as a child, as a tiny, tiny little baby, even still in the womb. These sounds are able to completely calm you down and bring your central nervous system to hopefully relax you, even in times of duress. This may be a very good insight into how powerful the human voice really is as an instrument. Maybe this is why they had masks on us all along, muzzling us, trying to take away our ability to speak, our ability to breathe as well, properly, I should say. It's an act of slavery. Slaves often have muzzles. But I, I always wonder that that even if it's just ooh, ooh, even if it's just that, even if it's just shh, this can be from the parent. It really triggers something special. But even if you're not the parent, if you produce certain types of sounds from you, from a human body, try doing it with a trumpet. Try doing it with a guitar. Yeah, I can play a lullaby on a ukulele or a guitar, and yes, they'll probably like it and go to sleep, but they'll also get very excited by it and maybe want to grab it, and it won't be the most relaxing thing for them. I used to go to sleep to death metal. It's not like crazy, angry, awful music isn't going to, and I don't think it, I, I enjoyed a lot of it. It's not doesn't mean that you can't go to sleep to it. So it doesn't have to be a child's lullaby played soothingly. But sound in general clicks, clicks you to something. But when it's a human being, the impact is very great. The human voice is the only voice, is the only instrument. I messed up again, sorry. Um, you know, there's also something to mention as far as your voice and how you hear it. Just like when I'm editing my own show and I hear my voice, I'm like, that's my voice. It's not the same when you hear it recorded. Why is that? There's something called conduction. There's bone conduction and there's air conduction in sound. When you, if you were to hum and, and close your ear holes thoroughly, you actually might hear it louder because the inner bone conduction is really sending it to you without any air conduction to mix with the sound. When you hear your voice recorded, you're getting the air induction, taking it in that way, conduction, I'm sorry, and you don't get the bone conduction when you're hearing it through a player or on your headphones. So another part of the idea that your parent can soothe you the most might have to do with the fact that you're inside of your mother when you hear her at first. So it's a, it's a fully internalized conduction. It may be a third way. Maybe there's womb conduction on top of, you know, you're in a cavity of water. Uh, the beginning of all life, including maybe the whatever we live on. And this is another interesting facet of the listening process. So you have your bones can actually take things in. And um, I was finding a lot of, I found a lot of interestingly said things. There's other theories, by the way, I actually should mention this. There's optimum process theory, virtual pitch theory, pattern transformation theory. But no matter what, I always ended up finding a diagram that looks just like this. 
How many times have you seen a diagram that looks just like this? Logarithmic, I assume. Tell me if I'm wrong. But this is just a graph of numbers and it's a straight line. I don't care what this means. I'm not even gonna tell you what part of the book I found that has this, I don't even care what it is. I'm just showing you that I find that graph describing all kinds of different things, that exact thing. Now, yes, it may be reality, it may exist, but math is not reality. You have to have things, you have to show things. I am very curious about why that always is kind of like a, hey, look at this. There's a reason. Um, the, that streamlined nature of the way that graph looks is the homeostasis that nature requires, that nature wants. But is that really the answer? Is that sound? Is this sound? I guess, but there's obviously more to it. Again, just think about that image I just showed you, or I'll pull it up again. Just look at this. This is a part of your ear. This is one part that takes care of looking at things. You know, really meditate on this image. It, it's really something. I was on Topher Gardner's BioCharisma podcast recently, and we were discussing the nature of musical scales, especially the Western. And I was saying how, yeah, now they everything's equally divided between the octave. And he said, that's not nature. He didn't know. He was just, he, his opinion is right. No, it's not nature. And that graph is not nature. And this, you know, sinusoidal, single, pure wave that they study things with, it's not nature. It doesn't make sense. It's not natural. It's not going to get you answers as to what is the nature of our realm. What is sound and why does it work so well? Why do the pyramids have, why are the pyramids sound generators, right? It's, there's so much to it. Just think of how bells are used in certain rituals or even exorcisms. There's bells involved, right? Bells can do a lot and they're very meditative. And of all the things I can think of, bells are the closest to something else that is used to study these things. And that is a non-fundamental approach. Now, I, I can't help but think that that's a very big part of Western culture nowadays, a non-fundamental approach to something. Think about it. How many people do you know that actually make money doing something that they didn't start from scratch with and learn from the very basics from the beginning? It's not, I'm not putting a negative spin on any of it, but it's a big part of how our world works now. I don't suggest that you do take the Department of Education's advice or schooling or anything from them. They're the stranger trying to offer you candy. You run away. Colleges, I had a good college experience for music, but there's a major problem with the way it's done. And they're really showing their hand lately, especially the big Ivy League ones. And that is another story for another day. But they actually take out the fundamental to study pitch sometimes. And um, it's not reality. I have a whole bunch of stuff to read. I'm not going to read it. It's not reality. The fundamental is the pitch. And the bell especially very, very, very large bells. The fundamental's there, but it's extremely obscured. It's very hard to hear the fundamental of a bell. It's a cacophony of dissonance, actually, where the partials are all fighting each other in their overtone series. Um, maybe that's why. Maybe, maybe that's why bells do what they do. Maybe that's why they have that meditative impact that they have. It's possible. I don't know. 
But again, I'm just trying to bring to light two very important concepts about sound in general. And that is, first of all, melody, one note at a time. Monophonic, one human voice is the most impactful thing. And um, the idolization of certain people's voices, whether it's an influencer or Taylor Swift, good or bad, I'm not saying anything like that, Britney Spears, whatever, pop culture icons. Um, they're ne- you almost never get their pure voice. You're getting this auto-tuned thing. And I think, and of course, a huge band behind it, and they're, they're changing the key all the time. More on that in the future. I'm, this is not a music theory discussion, but they don't stick to a pure um, tonic, a tonal center that you can really focus on for the tune. They change keys a lot, or they use keys in a way that's not very tonal. Again, more on that in the future. It's not not a time to discuss that, but auto-tune is a great example of them trying to mess with the human voice and not hear it a certain way. You can tell when a recording is auto-tuned, and as most of them, there's some when you can't necessarily tell when the production value and the budget is very, very, very high and unrealistically high, like every Hollywood movie, unrealistically high budgets. Why is our money going to that stuff? But... um. Melody is king. Chords can actually deceive. When you add a chord to a melody, which is absolutely not the way of the ancient world, as far as I can tell, a chord can make a melody that is major, it can actually make that melody sound minor. For example, and that might be an entire episode in itself. I might actually be making notes about that right after this. Um, Think about that. Harmony can actually deceive the listener regarding melody, which is the direct conversation. Melody is the song. You can copyright a melody. You can't copyright the chords of the song. Because most songs, especially nowadays written on guitar, they're going to hit the same five, six, seven chords. It's unavoidable. That's how the instrument's played. Certain things are more comfortable than others. And uh, same for piano. Every instrument has its weaknesses, and every instrument has its places that are very easy to play and easy to learn at first um you can't copyright chords melody is what you copyright you copyright the song the song is the melody the human voice typically is what delivers the melody you might be thinking maybe jazz or classical doesn't true but the melody is still king and it's what you're focused on and the best composers get you to focus on what they want you to focus on at all times no matter how many instruments you're playing right um, you know, the other part of this that I didn't get to yet that I definitely want to is that sound can be used to injure you, probably even kill you. And I'm not necessarily talking a clockwork orange kind of way. I am in a certain way, of course, the Ludovico technique, I believe it was called with Beethoven's ninth, of course. And um, I think it's very important to quickly glance over this information too because frequencies 5g whatever else you want to think of right now i'm i'm there's stuff passing through my body right now from either the tower down the road or the house's smart meter next to mine even the light bulbs even this computer 
receiving a signal from my, my internet connection. I am constantly being bombarded with frequencies. Frequency warfare is a constant term, but this is more than that. Frequency can actually be used in war, and it has. Frequency is used, um, think about sonar. Frequency is used to actually keep aquatic life away from certain areas, just for the protection of the preservation of the area. Um, I guess it can help a whale not bump into a submarine. <laughs> I assume there's, there's precautions against that. Um, think about the invisible fences that they use for dogs nowadays. It's frequency. It, there's no there's no gate. They just wear something. It's not a shocker. It's just frequencies. I assume it doesn't necessarily hurt them, but it gives them enough to say, I'm not going any further than this. And uh, there was the LRAD, which was the long-range acoustic device that was used popularly really used this one time in Pittsburgh in 2009 where people were protesting the G20 summit and um, I think there was actually a lawsuit where somebody you know had lifelong ear damage from this and they got some money thousands of dollars but you can use sonic devices to attack entire crowds or maybe even armies of people there's something else that I wasn't able to find right away I believe it was called the God Bomb or something I don't remember exactly what it was called but they would use airplanes to send these crazy loud uh, signals, and those were, you know, meant to injure and potentially get people to grab their ears and drop their guns. You don't need this; can be a manless operation. You don't even really have to have perfect aim. You just gotta have the microphone, <laughs> the microphone, the speaker facing the group. That's it. The frequency can be used in very nasty ways. Some music has actually been written with the intention of injuring for the sake of for the sake of art, right? So there's lots of ways that sound can be used. And with the way things are going nowadays, I think it'd be a very optimal way for them to approach a very, very, very large group of people. Because no matter how you want to take the statement, there are more of us than them. And the easiest thing they can do is, th is that. I don't think, you know, a technically speaking hot war is really the answer. People just aren't going to like it anymore. The Federal Reserve is starting to show their hand. There's lots of people realizing what's going on around them in more ways than one, thanks to COVID or not. And I think this might be a really scary way to do a lot of damage and keep entire places under control. An invisible fence is there no there's there not a way to do that for entire cities, especially if they bunch a bunch of, if they slam a bunch of people into a city, can they not use that kind of frequency ability to, to keep people in check, keep people lined up? Probably. If your ears are being assaulted with no stopping, you wouldn't be able to even move. It's very effective way to um take care of that kind of thing, unfortunately. It even happened in a Godzilla movie. Hmm, invasion of the Astro Monsters. All right. You know, I'm going to be doing something on Godzilla very soon. Where, where is my... Where is it? There it is. So keep your ears open for that. Ah, ears. No pun intended there. You know, I don't necessarily think I had too much else to say because this is kind of a primer for a lot of other things coming. And um, just know that there's always math. It's always... These computer math terms, processing, things like that. It's so much more than that. 
I really hope that the kinds of communities that are building now are starting to work towards finding answers that we've never had. Now, I'll leave you with this. Is it an ancient concept? The idea of frequency warfare? Maybe. Take a look at this. The Battle of Jericho. I don't have anything memorized. I'm reading this here. Uh, Joshua 6, 1 through 27. The walls of Jericho fell after the Israelites marched around the city walls once a day for six days and seven on the seventh day. And then seven priests blew their trumpets. After the shofar was blown, they cheered, the walls fell. And here you can clearly see there are only seven trumpets in this image. And those men are dressed like the priests. It's an interesting tale. And I'm wondering how accurate it really is regarding, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to take these things as accurate historical events. I saw some things that said, we went to the site, nothing happened. It's not provable. Yeah, of course it's not provable. Look at these numbers. Seven. Uh, We just had the number seven earlier. We were talking about the seven days of the week or the seven musically unique sounds in a in any key do re mi fa so la ti number eight the octave is do again restart um seven is a very big deal and they mentioned the shofar the ram's horn that is aries so maybe there's something to work at with that i'm sure that there is and funny enough i noticed um there was this other mention i think it was in the music cognition book it said, for obscure historical reasons, I may have more of an answer to it than they did. Um, the tonic of the most basic scale is C. In other words, why isn't A our primary first note that we really learn about musically? It's, it's a little weird, I know. But I made a very good observation again on that Interverse episode that there's a musical zodiac. It also starts on C. And Aries is not the first... Um, sign of the year of the year that we use but it is the first sign of the zodiac technically speaking and it sort of happens in a there's a very interesting relationship with c and aries and i made a ton of relationship with chords and the zodiac itself uh some very interesting stuff that i was i shouldn't have been but i was surprised at how amazingly they connected and um you know there's plenty more where that came from and um well, I've I've got a ton more to say about all this. I really do. So I'm hoping that from here, I will probably branch off into several episodes, as a matter of fact. I hope that you can leave some comments and tell me what you thought about all this information. If anything was new for you, um, let me know what and what you'd like to hear next as far as musically speaking, because I can go in any direction. You can see that I've done my best not to make this a music theory discussion, but I just want you to think about that simple idea that if you played a lullaby that would put you right to sleep if your mother sang it would it be as effective on guitar or trumpet or tuba or flute of course not when we take in sounds our entire body registers it and does something with it and the human voice is ultimately the number one most incredible instrument there is And everything else is doing its best to imitate it. Just like any invention, 
that pretty much that you can name is doing its best to replicate something the human body already does. It might be some insight as to the idea of are we really just a blip in the middle of nothing? Or are we so important that where we live was made for us to figure it all out? I'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for watching. I certainly had a little bit of a slowdown as I settled in my new location here, but I'm going to be right back on track as of right now. So look forward to more here on Third Eye Edify. Thank you so much for watching. I'll talk to you soon.